Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. Brought to you by myself, Diana Bang, and Grace Hill. From fashion, beauty, and homeware, Diana and I will cover industry topics and shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. How are you, Grace? How's your week been? Good. I feel like I always talk on this podcast about how sweaty I'm feeling right now, which is really not that attractive. But yeah, it's another very hot, humid time in in the UK. So I'm just sat here. I've had to turn my fan off so that I can do this podcast recording and not be too loud. But no, I'm I'm good. I'm just you're glowing. You're looking glowing. I think that's just the sweat on my uh, forehead. But uh, <laughs> we will see. Let's see if we can make it through without having heat exhaustion. But yeah, no, feeling tired as well. It's such a crazy time, like trying to sleep in not having air conditioning and and, and trying to deal with that. But I know I normally talk about what TV I've been watching, but one thing that I was staggered about reading was that in the height of lockdown. Britons spent 40% of their time watching TV, which I cannot believe. I wonder if that's continued in this heat or whether people are trying to get outside to cool off or whether they're staying inside to keep out of the shade. Have you been watching anything interesting, Diana? No, but I've been trying to book now. I'm going back to my motherland of Denmark next week. Copenhagen Fashion Week just finished. So I'm going the week after, which makes no sense. But (laughs) my boyfriend's having to fill out a form confirming our relationship. So we're going back to three years ago where he's having to say and confirm that we've been together for more than three months and that our relationship is more than just written communication on email and it's not only video calls, but that we are having a face-to-face relationship for his entry. Why is that? Is that like the Denmark's version of a passenger locator form? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Also, maybe Denmark are just, you know, three months is the time where you are in a solid relationship. And you need to confirm that and have that conversation before coming into the country. How exciting. I, I don't think I, I'll be having to fill out one of those forms anytime soon. <laughs> Well, it's a great way to confirm a relationship if you are dating. Maybe. That's what I should do. I'd be like, should we go to Copenhagen? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so what are we talking about on today's episode, Grace? Well, today we've got a very inspiring guest joining us who's created a challenger online jewellery brand. So we'll be delving into how the brand has adjusted their strategies post-COVID and explored the opportunities that the market is currently presenting. So on today's podcast, we have Connie Nam, founder and CEO of Astrid and Miu. Hi, Connie. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? How's lockdown been for you? What have you been up to? Hi, Diana. Hi, Grace. How are you? (laughs) Thanks for having me. Well, lockdown, it, it was quite interesting, wasn't it? It just felt really surreal when it first happened. We were just in crisis mode and we were working 24-7. And then I think it kind of like settled down and now... I think everyone's kind of itching to go back to normal. And I've started Mm -hmm. going out to restaurants during the week, which is really nice and refreshing. I started going back to the office from time to time. And I've actually done a couple of store visits in the morning, which is really nice to see all our store managers, our piercers, and make sure that all our hygiene measures are there. Absolutely. I bet they're thrilled Mm. to kind of have some more normality as well and be able to go back to work. And and Yeah, definitely. Actually, in the office, we've restricted going back to the office to certain departments who absolutely need to be there. But a lot of people are requesting to go back to the office because, you know, like especially young professionals, all their friends are in the office. So they're, yeah, they're kind of itching to go back to the office. So it's kind of a privilege to go back. 
I feel like my people team has found me a bit of a pest because I keep asking, uh, when can I go back? I like to <laughs> get out of my flat. And <laughs> so we'd love to hear about how you started your journey in building your brand and making the shift from investment banking to being a very successful entrepreneur? I was in investment banking for about four years after university. And then I was completely burnt out. I came to London to study in business school. And then after business school, I kind of started it out of an accident because I didn't want to get a job. I didn't want to go back to my old job or I didn't want to get a corporate job. So I kind of started this as a project. But when I was thinking about what kind of business to start... I used to go to this little boutique back home in Korea and the owner used to make jewelry. Everything was so beautiful, well displayed and very affordable. Everything was probably around $200 mark. And the main thing was she was so approachable and so nice and friendly. I just wanted to go in to just chat to her and then I would end up buying something in the end and she would never pressure me. So I thought, oh, like there must be a way to create this online initially, Mm -hmm. but then make it big and global and scale it. So that's where the idea came from. And that's how I started the business. Sounds like the dream, doesn't it? When it's like something that you were passionate about and you change your career to something that's been really successful, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely fun in the beginning because I started as a project and it kind of happened as an accident. Yeah, because it would be good to hear how you identified the white space opportunity in jewelry. We we know that with the branded jewelry category, this has grown 15% in the last 10 years. So what gave you the confidence to pursue this as a business? I think it was kind of a combination of my personal experiences. And I also happened to come across the secondary research I'll tell you later about. So as a consumer, when I was looking at different categories like fashion, there were so many cool brands out there and also bags and shoes. But with jewelry, there was no go-to jewelry brand for me. For me, like it was more about traveling and finding rare finds, going to the markets and finding jewelry. And there was no that one trusted source. So I thought there could be an opportunity to create something that's well-branded, well-made, and well-designed, but at affordable price points. And then I happened to come across this McKinsey report saying branded jewelry category is very small compared to fashion, but it was growing. So that kind of confirmed my, I guess, empirical evidence, and it it gave me confidence to start this. Oh my gosh, yeah. I know that jewelry kind of has that reputation of being hard to tap into. So, So how did you use your skills from your background in finance to kind of help you make those calculated risk and make that decision that you're backing the right products and and business? I actually didn't know that jewelry was a category that was hard to tap into. I had no idea. And I guess that's why I could just jump into it. But I guess one thing is it's a highly competitive market Mm -hmm. because anyone can kind of start it. And I think everyone knows someone who has a jewelry brand or who makes jewelry. So it makes it a really competitive market. But I guess what I did differently was from day one, I started tracking my sales, which seems very basic, but I think a lot of small business owners don't do. And I also started modeling, which was a core skill that I learned from investment banking and also started forecasting and putting in a lot of assumptions that I refined along the way, which helped the business, but also helped prepare me for pitching to investors. Those skills that a lot of, I guess, brand creators maybe had to learn along the journey, but you went into it being able to set your business up for success. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you hear a lot about with like with startups and especially when you read about lean startups, that it's all around testing assumptions. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you did that 
beginning of like you said of having a hypothesis and then modeling and seeing yeah um, yeah and that's kind of something that's kind of ingrained within the brand so everyone in the business does that we always like test things on a small scale yeah. and then roll it out I'm assuming you use a number of different data sources do you to, to yeah hypotheses that you have in yeah. the business yeah, obviously we started as an online brand. So everything is in the cloud, all the data. So we use Google Analytics, that which a lot of businesses use. We also use Ometria, which is a CRM system. We use Shopify, which our website is based on. So we use a combination of all these data. And then there's a lot of other cloud-based tools that we use. And I guess we are quite a geeky jewelry brand. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can say that. So Love we do that. do a lot of analysis. And as a founder and CEO, how did you manage the operational element of growing your business whilst managing multiple fundraising rounds? What were the challenges, I guess, you've faced going through those processes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult because once you're in that fundraise mode, you can't really do anything. You just don't have bandwidth, especially the first one, because I've ne- I'd never done that before, firstly. Yeah. So I had to really like put all my energy into it and really learn quickly how to do it, what investors want and things like that while trying to manage a team. And it's also very difficult to explain to the team what you're doing for six months and not raising money because it takes a long time to raise money. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the challenge, like kind of explaining, trying to explain to your team what you're doing, but also trying to like manage and run the business. Luckily, at every stage of the fundraise, I had a really good team who I could kind of rely on. And the most important thing was for me to articulate the vision and the strategy and give them a a bit of autonomy, give them budgets so that they can make their own independent decisions while I'm going out kind of MIA fundraising. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting that you said, like you set the vision, but then you gave them that autonomy to be able to run with it so that you could use your resource and, and focus on what was necessary, which was obviously kind of to drive the business and, and raise those funds. So in the last three years, we know that Astrid Mew has achieved a thousand percent growth to 10 million pounds in turnover. What are some of the strategies your brand produce that have contributed to the rapid growth rate over the past few years? I guess one of the things is our stores. So experiential retail, which really drove the growth of the business, as well as online community, which the business is built on. So I think it's a combination of both of them. And then innovating constantly with products. For instance, we use 3D technology, 3D printing technology to make sure that we prototype, which makes the lead times really short, which means that we can innovate with our products constantly rather than waiting for suppliers in Asia to deliver a sample. In five weeks, we can do prototyping in, I guess, like as short as three days. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And how often are you launching these new types of products? Do you have an in-house design team or the gathering trend information to determine what products you bring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a combination of in-house design team, but we also use freelance jewelry designers. So we have a big design team that does all the creatives, but jewelry specific, we always work with freelancers. So we, we can be very nimble, but we do do monthly product drops. Amazing. And and tell us a little bit more about the in-store experience that you guys offer at Estrid and me, because I know it's it's pretty unique. Yeah, yeah. So we have three components of the retail experiences. One is piercing, which we're really known for. And then we have the mm-hmm. tattoo services that we offer in one of our stores. And we have bracelet welding where you can get your solid gold chains that you can see here. You can mm-hmm. get them permanently attached on your wrist. <gasps> oh my gosh, amazing. Oh, wow. yeah. And these are made of solid gold. So 
you know, you can go to the beach, you can go swimming and they will never tarnish and you can keep them forever. And in case they fall, you can always come back and we can fix them for you. So we offer this service two days a week in our Kings Road store and our Box Park store at the moment. Amazing. I know, because I've just got off a holiday myself. And, you know, when you have the jewelry and you're so concerned, that like wearing it in the swimming pool, wearing yeah. it in the tarnish and it's going to fade and it's going to need yeah, it. Yeah. And sometimes that's not a service that, you know, or a product that is, is catered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially with bracelets. I find the plaques really annoying and they get in the way. So this like yeah. zap, like these welded bracelets are a game changer. Yeah, mm-hmm. I bet. I know because I get that with necklaces as well, where I feel like the clasp, they get caught up. Mm. And like, yeah. I can yeah, imagine. yeah. And oh, like all of your hair gets tangled yes. in the clasp, right? <laughs> oh my God. Such a nightmare. So I personally discovered your brand through Instagram and I'm now a, a massive fan. So how important is social media in contributing to the brand's success? Oh, social media is so important. And the landscape has changed so quickly. So when I launched the brand in 2012, I think it was still the traditional media, the glossies, the grazias mm-hmm. um, that were really important. But quickly, like within a year, Instagram just became, we, we just quickly realized that Instagram is our main channel. And yeah. I would say a majority of our customers that come in, their first touch point was Instagram, either through our own content or through the many influencers that we work with. And even our store customers, a lot of them already have heard of us through Instagram and they would come with the screenshot of an Instagram image saying they want their ears curated like this. They're coming to you like, I want this look, please create it for me. Yeah, yeah. And during the pandemic, it's become even more important because it became a platform to really communicate to our customers what we believe in, what the purpose of the brand is, and also take a stance on different things like the Black Lives Matter issue. Okay. So did you change your communications in Instagram? Did you have a different strategy during? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So pre-COVID, we would, I guess, communicate the obvious store experiences and products, Mm -hmm. and it would be more about the brand. Whereas after the lockdown, we communicated more about safety and also mental health and well-being of our customers Mm -hmm. and community, not really selling our stuff and also like praising our NHS workers and working with charity. Yeah. So that's been kind of the main content for the first month of the lockdown and then we quickly realized that our customers actually want to hear about jewelry through our platform they're kind of bored of you know like brands talking about working from home or (laughs) covid so we switched it to a lighter content of jewelry styling and things like that one month after so there's a lot of men who have maybe been proposing during coronavirus time you know being very close with their partners during that time. So maybe the jewelry search has been them locking it down with their partners. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any other platforms that you guys engage with or they're important to you outside of Instagram? Yeah, email platform is really important for us on really nurturing our existing customers because our customers are super loyal. So communicating, I guess, sometimes we communicate the same content we communicate on Instagram, but a lot of the times it's very tailored to our existing customers. Mm. And we get to hear about what spurred the idea to launch tattoo and piercing services in your stores. We know from you know reading about your business in 2018, you reported these services boosted a turnover by 350%. What analysis did you undertake for that strategy? Yeah, yeah. So before we introduced piercing and before anyone had this, we were really well known for ear cuffs, which are non-piercing ear jewelry. So 
we introduced ear cuffs, I think, like seven years ago when no one else had it. And we kind of became known for it. So people would come to get their ear cuffs and earrings, and we just became known for our ear category. And our customers started asking us whether we do piercing in our stores. And we kind of like repeatedly got that feedback from our store managers saying like, we should offer piercing, we should offer piercing. So in 2018, we started it as a party. So we would offer piercing in just one of our stores as a piercing party once a week. Mm -hmm. And then like every time we introduced it, they got fully booked up and customers were so upset that they couldn't book it. And then we started doing it two, two days a week in that store. And then people were so upset because it was fully booked. And then we decided to do it like, you know, every single day. And then we decided to roll it out in every single store because we quickly noticed that when people come in for piercing, they would buy more jewelry and they would be more engaged with the brand as well because they're, you know, kind of exposing themselves and really trusting our professional to pierce their ears and becoming vulnerable. And then um, we were thinking of different experiences we could provide. And we heard from our staff or our customers saying they would want micro tattoos and to go to a tattoo parlor and ask for a micro tattoo, you would normally get looked down upon. And it, it's quite it's quite an intimidating experience. And it's the same thing as piercing. And a lot of the times piercing parlors do tattoos as well and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So we thought we could do a tie-up. So we started doing that in one of our stores in central London, in a Neil Street mm-hmm. store. And they have been extremely popular as well. And some of our jewelry designs were translated from our tattoo designs as well. Wow. wow. Yeah, I can imagine as well for the like the fact that you've really listened to your customers and the experience that they want. And like, I've not got a tattoo myself, but I can imagine going into a tattoo parlor is quite an intimidating experience. And if it's a brand that they're familiar with and they feel comfortable with and they're loyal to, it's yeah. more of a, a natural place and environment to, to go for that. Yeah, service. yeah, definitely. And we make every single service very approachable. And, mm-hmm. you know, everyone who provides the services are very smiley, friendly. It's non-judgmental. And we make sure that everyone's comfortable and fully bought into what they want to do. And we want to make sure that they're fully committed before we do anything. And Connie, is it just ear piercings that they do? Or do you kind of do like belly button or like nose? Or We did do nose, but because it's on the face, oh. we're not doing it right now. We're just doing ear piercing. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's really interesting. You can do ears, but not face. Yeah, yeah. yeah face. Because face, facial services are only resuming on the 15th, right? Yeah. So I so think we are, allowed to, we are allowed to do nose piercing from the 15th, but I'm not sure whether we're going to do them or not because the demand for nose piercing is not as high. It's mostly ear piercings. But ear piercings, like seriously, we had so many inquiries on a daily basis while we were in lockdown. And it just, as soon as we released the appointments, we were fully booked for two weeks immediately. I think people are just itching to get something done. It's like going to the hair salon and people just wanted to do something different. And I think people have time to reflect, don't they? And they're like, oh, like personal reinvention or like thing can I do? (laughs) Time to think about their wardrobe or hair or get a piercing. It's like the whole surge in homeware where people have just been buying, you know, small things to completely change their homes. That's Mm -hmm. like accessories 
before. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing so much home stuff. I've been getting deliveries every single day. Oh my God, honestly. <laughs> I know. It was quite awful, really. I feel like when I was here on the Isle of Wight with my parents, like every day there would be like a delivery because there were six of us that were in the house all together. So if it wasn't me, it was my mom or my brother's girlfriend or they're like, oh God, not It was probably mainly you. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So what are the the hero pieces and and categories that your brand has been known for over the past three years and and that can kind of continue to be your bestsellers. I know you've already mentioned that ear cuffs is what you were known for at one point. And I know me and my friends, we all have the, like the hug earrings for up on the top of the ear, but if you could talk us more through that, that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So ear categories are definitely our big hero category. And out of that, huggies are our best-selling category. And I think the reason is firstly because of the ear stacking trend, which is really popular. But I think we've kind of built that authoritative voice on the ear category throughout their ears, as well as through our piercing services. So people trust us as the source of, I guess, go-to source for ear jewelry. Did you see any shifts during the pandemic? Were there any categories that were performing particularly well during this time? I would say it was pretty consistent. Ear category was still strong, but we saw more uptick on statement jewelry. It might be because people wanted to show their jewelry on their yeah. Zoom calls. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a speculation. Yeah. Anna, you were guilty of that when you were wearing <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised I'm not wearing any big earrings now. But yeah, I typically have big earrings just to makes the most out of the square that you have where you can see everyone yeah 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 definitely and our neck neck category really rose as well necklaces I think that's also because of the uh, zoom calls I would presume yeah Yeah, definitely everyone's like thinking how they can make themselves look fresh and different yeah yeah waist up and then you've got trap hands underneath yeah exactly So how do you kind of anticipate the jewellery market evolving in the midst of the kind of economic downturn? Now that we're very much into it now and, and hopefully yeah. coming to an end, how, how do you see it evolving? Yeah, I think definitely the affordable luxury category will yeah. be on the rise because people want to treat themselves and it's kind of like yeah. the lipstick effect of the yeah. previous economic downturn. But I think with the high-end jewellery, there will be a bit of dip just because people are holding on to their mm-hmm. you know, purses and the purchasing power goes down. And I think there will be um, a bit of shift away from fast fashion. So throwaway jewellery, but more into conscious fashion and sustainability mm-hmm. around jewellery like, uh, in line with what's happening in fashion. So how will you embrace that sustainability element for your brand? Yeah, so we're trying to reduce carbon prints, firstly through 3D printing when we prototype instead of getting things manufactured in Asia and shipping them back. We try to do all the prototyping in the UK. So it's locally sourced and we've changed all of our packaging into 100% recycled materials that are 100% recyclable. So that's one step. And then I guess sustainability doesn't just come from products. It also comes from how you treat employees. So we treat everyone with fairness. Everyone has, you know, everyone in the company has above London living minimum wage and kindness is part of our core values. So I would say like all of these combined. Mm. And how are you prioritizing them? Are you, you know, I guess now with external pressures and everything going on, are there some that you're prioritizing more than others? And are there any other strategies that you're adopting during this time? Yeah, I think keeping our customers and our staff safe 
has been the priority for us. And then the next bit was making sure that the business stays afloat because we are a small business at the end of the day. So we had to make sure that the business is alive in order to keep all the jobs and make making sure that our balance sheet is healthy. And then the next is we actually didn't skimp on innovation. We actually started doing more R&D on our product designs during the pandemic because we knew that our loyal customers were staying with us and they wanted newness. So all, all of those three things combined, I say, were priorities for us. And according to the British Retail Consortium, e-commerce accounted for 6.2% of sales in 2009. It jumped to 19.2% in 2019. And then for the first time ever, online sales accounted for half of all retail sales in 2020. So jumping to over 50% in less than a year, which is crazy. So how important is e-commerce to your business and and do you use data to support this? Yeah, I mean, extremely important. And it's always been important even pre-COVID. I started this brand as an online brand and our sales through online accounted for 60%. Obviously, it was 100% during the lockdown. So, And whenever we open stores, we always refer back to our online data on where do our customers come from and then decide which locations to open in. And we use like various cloud-based systems like Google Analytics, Ometria, Shopify to make sure that we thoroughly analyze data. Mm, yeah, there's so many metrics out there to try and use the top end tips to understand the market. And I mean, we know that very well from editing because we work with yeah, a lot yeah. of data. So we know, yeah, how important it is. But it'd be great to understand how do disruptor brands like yourselves compete with e-commerce giants like Amazon. We we read in a Financial Times article that lockdown shopping has boosted Amazon's revenue by 40%, which is crazy. You see them as, as competitors and, and, and how do you compete with Giants like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess Amazon is amazing in delivering convenience to customers. However, I, I would never say that Amazon is a competitor because for us, the way we compete in the market is to provide a strong USP. So for us, it's beautiful physical experience that someone like Amazon can't provide and that intimate connection with our customers and community and aspirational content. And obviously, you need product designs, um, mm-hmm. which you know big, big retailers can't really provide. Mm-hmm. So we know one of your big strategies has been pop-up stores. I know mm-hmm. you've now got like physical permanent stores too. How are you adjusting your pop-up strategy post-COVID following the success of those that came before? We know that they kind of accounted for around $10,000 in sales a day, the ones yeah. that were in New York, which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So we're holding off on this for now just because I think we need to nurture our existing stores and they're until they get back to normal but we are watching this space very carefully to make sure that you know we we can go out there especially because we want to open up regionally so pop-up is on the cards and we are getting landlords knocking on our doors on a daily basis so that I would say like when when we get back to normal or like when we're closer to getting back to normal I'll definitely pursue this strategy again. So you've Mm -hmm. mentioned testing is really important to you guys. Have you typically done pop-ups in locations that you've considered for permanent stores or how? Yeah, yeah, many times. So our Neal Street store, we actually did a three-month pop-up in the store next door and then decided to take on a permanent lease there. 
And also King's Road is actually a pop-up store. It doesn't look like a pop-up store, but we have a two-year lease there as a pop-up. Amazing. And yeah, you mentioned about pausing that strategy for now, but also with, we know that with the tattooing piercing services, that's also having to be paused because of the pandemic. What does the future from your point of view of the store experience look like with social distancing? And how are you luring customers back to brick and mortar following and then an yeah. extended period of lockdown? Yeah, so some of the measures that we've put in for our services is we have longer time slots for the services. Obviously, that kind of chips into our profitability and sales, but we thought it's really important to make sure that there's longer lead time so we can sterilize everything very thoroughly, although we did that before as well. Sterilize everything thoroughly, make sure that the customers are 100% you know, feeling comfortable. And before we used to let their friends come into the studio, but we only let one customer come into the studio at a time and everyone needs to wear face covering and we do temperature checks of customers as well when they come in. Yeah, so all, all of these things. And I guess in order to entice customers in, just clearly spelling out what the measures are and making sure that people can make an informed decision, just being transparent, I think was key in getting our customers back. It makes really good. Yeah, well, I went to a restaurant even last week when I finally went out to a restaurant and they were doing temperature checks before sitting down. And then I hear that some people, you know, coming back from traveling, they don't do temperature checks at the airports, which it's, mm. it's interesting how some take these strategies and some some don't. Yeah, I, I actually went to a restaurant two weeks ago where they, they did temperature check and it just made me feel so much more safe seeing that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like if the customer knows the measures that you, you guys are putting in place, it makes them feel a lot more at ease and, and wanting to come back and, and enjoy that service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would be really good to know kind of what do you think the in-store experience for your brand could look like in the future? I know we've got social distancing measures, but are there, how does that, what does that look like? Uh, I think going forward, it will be more service driven. Mm -hmm. Whereas like pre-COVID, I would say jewelry was still the main driver of sales. But what we're noticing is post-COVID, there's less browsing. And when people walk in, there's very high intent of getting the service or buying jewelry, but it's a lot more service driven. They're coming in because they want to get their ears pierced or they want to get bracelet welding or they want to get their tattoos done. It's less to buy jewelry. I guess it's because people are so used to buying online now. It's doing something that can't be offered online. It's that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you can't get pierced online, obviously. So we read that you are planning on opening further stores in the UK when appropriate, but what does the future hold for your expansion internationally, physically and digitally? Yeah, that's a really good question. We were actually due to open a New York store right now, actually, if COVID didn't happen. So I think US is definitely on the cards. So next year, we are going to focus on building a stronger online community around the US, especially around New York. And then I think towards end of next year, if we're allowed to, if it's appropriate, I would like to open a physical store there. That's really interesting that you are, you were thinking about New York. What's the reason that you were deciding on, you know, US for the next permanent store pop-up? Yeah, so our online database, like majority is UK, but we found that the next big database came from the US and majority of that were coming from New York. So we decided to test it because we already had a database and we already had followers. 
out in the U.S. So when we opened our pop-up the first day, we had queues lined up and it was so overwhelming to see that. That must have been an amazing experience for you to see, like in a, in a country that's not your kind of home market, to see the excitement and the fact that people are queuing up to, to get into your store and experience the brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we could see through our stats and analytics that we had a lot of customers coming from the U.S., but just seeing them in real life and saying, oh, oh my God, you guys are here, amazing! That like American enthusiasm, it was so exciting to see. <laughs> and did yeah. you um, find out when people were coming into the pop-up how they'd found out or how they'd heard about the pop-up coming to the city? Yeah, a lot of them were through Instagram or through various influencers that we worked with. So Connie, what is the one thing that you'd like or want our listeners to take away from this episode? Yeah, I guess after the lockdown, there's general negative sentiment about physical retail But I want to highlight that our stores are almost getting there back to normal. And I I think it will be very different coming out of this crisis. But I think there's definitely room for physical retail if it's done right. It will definitely look different. It will be more service driven rather than product driven. But I think there's a bright future for physical retail because people always want that human touch and human connection. So that's one point that I wanted to mention. Yeah. What I love is that you've connected data with the physical store. So you've actually looked at kind of online and looked at where, where the database is coming from and then tested that hypothesis with, you know, physical store experiences and then use that to validate your, your strategies. So that's from, from my point of view, I, I love that. that I think that's <laughs> such a big takeaway. So yeah, Connie, thank you so much. It's been so insightful to hear your, your story and hear the success of your, of your business. Yeah, Nick, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. As a listener of ours, we are here to support you as the retail industry enters a new era. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all our listeners, ensure you are subscribed to the Insider Briefing. Sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. Thank you for listening to Unedited. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Connie, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with future episodes. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about us. If you have any further questions, you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com. We'd love to hear from you or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Goodbye.